All right, we're going to start today with the uh, 81st Psalm. To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob, that he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I did not understand. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hand were, hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn hearts to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. Heavenly Father, we do turn our disobedient hearts away from you, and we just uh, we don't give you the glory and the honor that we're due, not as an individuals, not as a nation, not as a people on the face of the earth. But you are ever merciful, and you call us back to you through your wonderful son, Jesus, and we thank you for that. Please bless this service. Please bless us and help us to not turn our backs to you, but our faces, and to take heed to your word and to uh, learn it and to uh, enjoy it all the days of our life. And may this sermon today be pleasing to you and the psalms of worship. May you be glorified through them. Thank you for every good blessing you've given us. What a wonderful creator creator you are. And all these things we say in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, just a few announcements before we get into other things. Um, I got rid of some bromeliads last week. If anybody else here wants bromeliads, um, at my house I have a bunch. And eventually I'm going to have to start throwing them away. I got millions of them, so... Feel free to come by and pick them up on the way home if you want some. Uh, the time change, it seems that uh, we got some people here that knew that it was at 10 o'clock. I thought my mom had forgotten, but she showed up right on time. And um, I'm always looking for inviters of others. I say that each week because, um, you know, people come and people go. And uh, especially on a day like today, today is uh, November 11th, which is um, Veterans Day. And uh, we have a, uh, a parade uh, downtown. Instead of having it on the holiday, they're having it on the day of Veterans Day. And um, quite a few people that have come out here in the past are military members, and so I'm sure they're there, as well as Kelly Carlin, who has never missed a Church on the Beach sermon. Uh, she is not here today because her daughter is in Sarasota Military Academy, and uh, she is performing in the Veterans Day Parade, so I want to wish her well and uh, let her know that I miss her presence here after uh, all the 48 sermons in a row that she did come to, actually more than that, but 48 from Genesis, uh, she's going to miss sermon number 49. But uh, anyway, um, another uh, item to mention is Paul and Elaine Stoll, who I bring up each week. Uh, our missionaries from Church on the Beach, who we do support from Church on the Beach, uh, are still in Japan, and they're winding their time down there. And I would ask you just continue to remember them in prayer as you um, uh, say your prayers throughout the week. Just remember them that uh, they're uh, going to be moving again. That's always stressful, and uh, 
uh, you know, just that they would have a, a nice end to their mission work and a good, safe trip back to uh, the United States. And um, uh, today is, as I said, the 49th sermon in the book of Genesis, and uh, we'll be looking through Genesis 22, the final chapters of that. Real beautiful passage uh, about uh, God's love for us and how he prefigured it in the uh, work of Abraham. What we'll do now is go ahead and get into the New Testament reading for the week, which is uh, Romans 8, verses 12 through 25. And as I say each week, I only give just a little commentary. I just read it, and uh, maybe something comes off my head, and maybe not. But uh, Romans 8, 12 through 25 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Paul is telling us, you know, actually God is telling us through Paul, that we are not to live according to the flesh. And it's hard. I mean, we all suffer with uh, the desires of the flesh, whether they're, you know, other uh, people or whether it's uh, money or whether it's, uh, you know, eating too much or smoking or whatever thing. And I don't mean that uh, any of those things are wrong in and of themselves. So if anybody here smokes or eats too much or whatever, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying that we war with these things in us. Some people that do smoke don't want to. If you want to, hey, you know, nothing illegal about it and, uh, but uh, we're, we're warring with the flesh, and we're not to be debtors to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What Paul is uh, saying here is that if you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he makes this abundantly clear, and I bring it up week after week, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you are saved. If you don't do that, then you are going to be, as he says, you're going to die. But if you put to deed, uh, death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, we don't actually do that in and of ourselves. We do somewhat in a process called sanctification, where we become more Christ-like, hopefully, as we live as Christians. But we put the deeds of the flesh to death through the body of Jesus Christ. He lived those things that we cannot live, and we trust in him that he will bring us through this body of death and into the body of life. So I'm certain that's what he's talking about there. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And the sons of God, the first time that is mentioned, goes all the way back to Genesis. I believe it's chapter 5 or 6 where it speaks of the sons of God marrying or uh, you know coming together with the daughters of men. And from that time on, all the way through the Bible, other than a couple references in the book of Job, the sons of God are the redeemed of the Lord, God's chosen people. And as a matter of fact, Jesus in um, the uh, gospel accounts equates the resurrection with being a son of God. In other words, if you are one of the Lords and you will be resurrected in that state, then you are a son of God. How do you become a child of God? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We are adopted as children of God because of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. We are positionally in him, and therefore we are, uh, you call it a brother of Jesus, but we are a child of God through Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say that we are actually joint heirs with Christ in what God is doing. Uh, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Once again, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and the Spirit bears witness of that. It is residing, he is residing in us because of our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Um, verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Oh, we're going to read it right here. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. How do we suffer with Christ? We suffer with him on the cross. Positionally, we give our life to him and vicariously through him, we suffer the death that we deserve and we are granted new life in Jesus Christ. It says, um, verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul of everybody that you see in the New Testament is the one that suffered the most. And he goes through a litany of all the things that he had suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. He went through beatings and imprisonments. He was lost at sea. He was rejected by his own people. You know, he was stoned. He uh, it just it, he suffered greatly for the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, um, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. All the things that he suffered, it means nothing compared to what's coming. And that's something that each of us needs to hold on to because we all suffer at one time or another, whether it's through the suffering of a family member, we see that and we, we have empathy toward them, or we suffer in and of ourselves. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All right, I'm going to read a couple more before I tell you about that. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The entire creation is fallen because man is fallen. It's inherently fallen and everything is in a state of futility because of this. If you look at the pattern in the Bible, for example, of the years, of uh, uh, the days of the year, it's actually a 360-day year in the Bible. But we have a 364.25-day uh, year. And the reason why is because it's not perfectly aligned anymore. And this is the same with all of creation. We see stars explode. We see things happening that, uh, uh, you know, little puppies die. And that's um, uh, just the way of the world. And the reason why is because it is a fallen creation. All of creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. Someday we are going to be walking on streets of gold and in a new heavens and a new earth, which will not have this, this bondage that it currently has. So that's what he's speaking about there. Then he goes on and he says in um, uh, verse 22, For we know that while that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. I can tell you that that is something that I think of all the time. Is I just, you know, I go to bed every night and the last thing I say is, come Lord Jesus. And I wake up and the first thing I say is, Jesus, I love you. It is my hope to see Jesus and to be free from this body of death. And of course, whenever something bad happens, you know, we had an election this past week and a lot of people didn't like the, re the results of it. So what do they do? The first thing they post on Facebook is, come Lord Jesus, because they know that this is not our home. We're not content with the way things are in this world. And that is, that is just the way it is. Somebody has a, a, you know, a family member die. They'll say, boy, I can't wait to see him again in glory. These are the things that Paul is speaking about here. Um, uh, verse 23, not only that, I already read that, verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one ho ho still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it 
with perseverance. I'll give my uh, thoughts on this, and this is going to upset at least one, if not everybody here, but uh, I do not believe in visions of Jesus where he actually comes and appears to people. And a lot of people do, I understand that, but that is hope that is seen. And Paul says that that is not what we have. We live by faith and not by sight. If Jesus, uh, you know, just manifests himself to people, then they have nothing to hope for. They have the Lord and they have seen him in all of his glory. Instead, you know, I, I understand that people do have visions and the Lord is in that vision. That does not mean that it was the Lord in that vision. It was them making the Lord in their visions is what I'm trying to say. And people get their categories confused. We went through um, uh, this a, a few sermons ago where, uh, what was his name, Abimelech had a, a, a vision in the night and there was no doubt that it was God that came to him. And throughout the Bible, when the Lord appears, there is no doubt. Whereas when people have a vision, they, they, there's always a doubt attached to it. And uh, so that's just how I perceive that. We live by faith and not by sight. If we have sight, then we don't have faith. And Jesus said that, as long as he's here, the Holy Spirit can't come. And when the Holy Spirit is here, Jesus isn't here. And we're going to see that when the Holy Spirit is taken out, Jesus will come to us. So there, there is not a uniting of the two concepts. If the Holy Spirit is here with us, and he is, then Jesus isn't. That's, that's how I'd like to uh, end that. And I'm not here to get in an argument with people about it. I understand people's passions about dreams they've had and about visions they've had. But uh, I just don't believe that they are actually the Lord coming to them. All right, um, we'll go ahead and read the 82nd Psalm, and uh, then we'll uh, get into uh, the rest of the uh, service today. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long until you judge un- uh, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So wonderful words from the psalmist today. And I have one more thing that I want to read. I uh, just want to give it to you because uh, somebody did something last week that just really touched my heart. Um, uh, you know, I, I never ask for any donations here. If people give them, that's great. And I'm always appreciative of that. Um, eventually, my wife here is going to retire. And when she does, then I'm going to actually have to ask for don- donations or uh, do something else with my life. But uh, last week, somebody did something that just it, it, it touched me. And I want to read this verse and then uh, explain it to you. Uh, this is Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 6. It says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And I had a, a couple people here. One of them uh, posted to me on Facebook before the uh, service. Uh, uh, we caught a bunch of fish yesterday, and uh, would you like some? And I said, no, I don't like fish, but I know my wife would. And uh, they brought in, they weren't just two fish. They were giant. They, I mean, they came from way 70 miles out and uh I'm sure that uh, my wife is absolutely thankful for that. And I'm thankful every time somebody does something like that for me because uh, I honestly feel that I don't deserve it. And uh, uh, you want to do something nice for me, you do it for my wife, and that will make me feel just as happy as can be. Anyway, I appreciate that, and I wanted to acknowledge you for that. And uh, one more time, I want to uh, state that uh, i got to pick that back up. I want to state one more time that Kelly Carlin is not here for the first time in uh, the 49 49- sermons that we've done from the book of Genesis and uh, 
I, I miss seeing her face here. It's kind of a comfort to look in her direction. And uh, because she's not here, I hope I'm not a little bit off today. But uh, anyway, we'll go ahead and get into the sermon now. This is uh, Genesis 22, verses 9 through 24 is what we're going to look at today. We did the first eight uh, verses last week, and uh, we'll get into those. This is called The Lord Will Provide. And as I do every week before we actually get into the sermon, I uh, give you this day in history. Today is 11 November, and on this day in history, we had in 1620 the Mayflower Compact was signed by the men on the Mayflower when they landed in Provincetown Harbor near Cape Cod. The compact called for just and equal laws. And I have a couple things to say about that. The first is that when they established that compact, it was only the second time in human history that a nation was established on a covenant with God. The first was when God made a covenant with the people of Israel from God to Israel. And the second was when this land was established from the people to God. And it began with the words, in the name of God, amen. And they went on to say that we are doing this for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that this land would be set aside for that purpose. So that occurred on this day in 1620, and the compact called for just and equal laws. And uh, if you disagree with me, I have no problem, but I'm going to say that uh, taxing people uh, differently is not a just and equal law. If you are going to have somebody that makes $10 and somebody that makes uh, $10,000 and you tax them both at 10%, then you're going to get $1 from this person and $1,000 from that people, that, per that second person. And that's t entirely just and fair. But when you start unequitably taxing people, all you are doing, and this, is, this goes back to Robin Hood, you are robbing from the rich to feed the poor. And that is not the biblical model. The biblical model is a set amount regardless of wealth within a nation. And the reason why God did that is because he wanted his people to prosper. And when people prosper, they will not only give what they are required to give, but they tend to take care of others in need as well. And when that is taken away from them, then the taking care of others in need does not occur. And it becomes the obligation of the government and then the government starts to usurp the rights of the people. So it's just one thing I was thinking about as I was preparing this this, this this morning is that we do not have just and equal laws, and we really need to get back to that, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, 1889, Washington became the 42nd state of the United States of America. And uh, my wife, when I traveled to all 50 states to preach at the capitals a couple years ago, my wife came out for... Uh, 10 of the states, and uh, one of them was the state of Washington. And uh, in the Capitol building, it is just marvelous. It's a, it's a dedication to this great man. I mean, his statue is here. His pictures are everywhere. Uh, it, it, it's just a real honoring uh, uh, place when you uh, want to look at your founding father and your first president, the state of Washington. But anyway, uh, that was uh, the 42nd state of the United States. In 1918, World War I came to an end when the Allies in Germany signed an armistice. This day became recognized as Veterans Day in the United States, and so many people are out celebrating that right now. They're at the uh, parade downtown, and um, that occurred in 1918. And then in 1921, just a couple of uh, uh, years later, the Tomb of the Unknowns was dedicated at Arlington Cemetery in Virginia by U.S. President Harding. And uh, if you uh, ever see the picture of those people that guard that tomb, it can be raining, it can be snowing. Sandy went by, and there were gale force winds, and those men were standing out there at attention guarding that tomb. And it's, it's just an honoring thing to uh, see and to understand 
uh, our devotion as a nation to the people that have secured our rights for us. And I'm going to make a point about that with the next thing that occurred on this day. Kate Smith first sang Irvin Berlin's God Bless America on network radio on this day in 1938. And uh, I, uh, I obviously am one of the people not pleased with the outcome of the last election on Tuesday. Wednesday, I had the worst headache of my entire life, and I know it was just because I was unhappy about what happened. Um, and I determined, because of the choice that we have made in this nation, we have elected a platform. I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about a party platform which condones homosexuality and the murder of the unborn. And because they do that, and those are anti-biblical tenets, they're not just unbiblical, they're against the Bible. And we have chosen that platform as our platform of the United States of America. You will never have Charlie Garrett sing the song, God Bless America, again. Nor will I say, God Bless America, again, until this nation repents from its direction. And if that upsets you, I, I just don't care. You will see on every post that I make now on Facebook, uh, darling, do you know what I say after every post? Every single post I do this now, bless God, America. And that will be what I say until this nation once again accepts our responsibility as that nation that was founded under God for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless God, America. Okay, so uh, if we have somebody out here singing God Bless America, you're just not going to have me participating in it. Um, 1940, the Jeep made its debut. Beep, beep. And in 1966, the U.S. launched Gemini 12 from Cape Kennedy, Florida. The craft circled the earth 59 times before returning. And I was thinking about that as well this morning, is that uh, NASA and the American people came together to do this great adventure of space exploration. And it was about three years ago that the president of the United States changed the principal role of NASA from being a space and aeronautics administration to an outreach to Muslims. And I have no problem with outreaches to Muslims. I've lived in a Muslim nation. I've got many Muslim friends. I have no problem with outreach to Buddhists or anybody else. That's why we're here, is to preach the gospel, and hopefully people will understand who Jesus Christ is and where their theology is wrong. But we don't take government funds to make an outreach to Muslims under the guise of hundreds of millions of dollars of space exploration. So once again, we've got these funny things going on that uh, are contrary to our understanding of the nature of God and the nature of America and its role in this, this land. Okay, anyway, um, Genesis 22, we're going to go ahead and read the uh, verses first, and then we'll get into our sermon, and we'll be done in about maybe uh, 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Um, let's see here, Genesis 22, starting with verse 9, it says, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound his, Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing 
and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as of the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildesh, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight bore Nahor to Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. Today we're going to look at the completion of the greatest test of faith imaginable. Abraham's test is answered in a glorious and wonderful way, and each detail of this story looks forward to something even greater, the coming Messiah. The riches of this passage can only make us stand back in awe and look at what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. Our text verse for today comes from Hebrews. It's from the 11th chapter, the 39th and 40th verses. It says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Abraham, along with a host of other faithful souls that are recorded in the Bible or who lived their life without any record, have waited to see the fulfillment of God's promises. But they are still waiting because God will bring us all near to him together in one joyous gathering. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is by faith, Abraham. A few weeks ago at the beginning of the sermon about Isaac's birth, I said this, everything about our relationship with God ultimately comes down to faith. It is based on faith, proper faith. Misdirected faith, after all, is wasted faith. And I'm gonna give you an example just so you can think this through. If you believe, there's one of two things you can believe about Jesus. He's a created being or he's the Lord God Almighty. One of them will lead you to condemnation and one of them will lead you to salvation. God isn't fickle. He has done something in human history and he wants us to understand it. And so if your faith is misdirected, it is wasted. Don't waste your faith. I bring that up now because what we looked at last week and what we will finish today is not merely so much a test of obedience as it is a test of faith. Most people think obedience. As a matter of fact, I was out doing my mission work yesterday and I was with uh, three other guys and I asked them, what was Abraham's test? And immediately one of the guys says it was a test of obedience. And I said, no, that's not correct. And we're gonna see that and why it wasn't a test of obedience. And if you have a commentary in your Bible that says it is, as I say week after week, if you have a bad commentary, put an X through it. Because that is not what God wants us to learn from this story. Obedience is mentioned at the end. You obeyed my voice. But that's not what God wants us to learn from this. And I'll explain it so that you will see this by the time we get done. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. If you remember that verse from a couple sermons ago, it was in chapter 21. That was when Hagar and Ishmael were being dismissed from the camp of Abraham. 
And at that time, God said to him, as he'd already said earlier, that Isaac would be the son of promise. What Abraham is asked to do and what he is going up the hill to actually do is much more a test of faith than obedience. Obedience would be the case if Isaac was born without a promise. But he was born with a promise. In other words, I want to give you an example so that you can understand this. If God came to me today and said, I want you to sacrifice your son who's sitting right over there, that would be for me a test of obedience, straight up and down. Why? It's because I have no promises about my son. However, if God came to me 20 years ago and he said, Charlie, your son Thor is someday going to be the president of the United States, and then he later came to me and he asked me to sacrifice him, that would be a test of faith, not of obedience. The reason is because God cannot lie. We know this both from the pages of the Bible and we also know it simply by thinking it through. By mere logic, we can know that God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, if he asked me to sacrifice my son, having already told me that he would be the president, then I would have to have faith that my son would be resurrected. And this is exactly what is happening here with Abraham. And it is proven true by Hebrews chapter 11. I read you these verses last week, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. I hope you're beginning to see the difference between the two and are also thinking of how you can apply this precept to your own life. There are things that we need to be obedient about. The law says don't run a red light. If I run a red light, then I'm being disobedient. If I don't run the red light, then I'm being obedient. There are things that we simply have to have faith in. God resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave. I have the Bible that tells me that, but I have to have faith that the Bible is true. That is purely faith. But then there are things that require our faith in order to be obedient. Jesus says to do certain things. Until I return, I want you to do these things. Therefore, I need to have faith in order to be obedient. So there's a different difference between these things, and we need to keep our compartments proper or our theology starts to get confused. The differences are important, and how we act, particularly in our faith in God and in his promises, is the single most important aspect of our lives. If you demonstrate the faith of Abraham, I assure you, your rewards will be great when you stand before the Lord at the Bema Seat of Christ. That's if you're a saved believer. If you're not, you're going to a different judgment. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. The last verse of chapter 21 said these words, And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. This was at the time of Isaac's weaning, meaning that he was three years old at that time. And from that time, we are told that he lived many days in the land of the Philistines. However, the Bible does not give us a specific amount of time. It could have been 10 years or it could have been 30 years. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says that Isaac was 25 years old at this time. Other Jewish scholars say 36 years old. But the Bible doesn't say Christian scholars in some of your commentaries will say this. They'll say he was 33 years old. And they'll do that in order to fit the picture of Jesus, who was 33 or about that age when he was crucified. 
There's no need to do this, though, because regardless of the age, the entire account already prefigures Jesus Christ in every detail. What God has hidden, such as this age, we can only speculate on, but it would be wrong to be dogmatic. One thing is for sure, though. He was old enough to carry all of the wood up the hill for the sacrifice, and it would have taken a considerable amount of wood to burn an offering. No matter what, he would have been at least in his teens, if not older. The word that we use to designate him as a lad in the English here is the Hebrew word na'ar, and it's normally associated with a younger man or one who is in tenderness of age. Again, though, regardless of the age, at least he was old enough to put up a fight or to run. And this is the important thought that we should keep in mind about these verses. Abraham is now 100 years old plus whatever age Isaac is. If Isaac is 15, then Abraham is 115. If he's 30, he's 130. Abraham is an old man, and yet the record stands that he built an altar, he placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, and then laid him on the altar. The entire act is based on two concepts, Abraham's faith and Isaac's obedience. What we see in Isaac, his obedience, is what we will later see in God's own son, as is recorded in the book of Philippians by Paul. It says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The call was given. Abraham got up early without delay, and he headed off to the mountains of Moriah. The hill was climbed on the third day. The altar was made ready. The wood was laid out, and the boy was bound, and he was placed in the exact spot of execution. Every detail of this prefigures exactly what God was going to do 1,800 years later through Jesus Christ. Abraham, then, is a picture of God the Father and Isaac of God the Son. The minuteness of the details is given for you and for me to see, to contemplate, and to believe. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. And by doing so, it was taken by God as a deed fulfilled. To Abraham, as I said last week, Isaac was already dead three days earlier in his mind. He is now merely completing what has already been accomplished. Paul writes to us about Jesus' fulfillment of this Old Testament shadow accomplished by Abraham. This comes from the book of Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Abraham didn't spare his own son, and neither did God. Abraham delivered up his son to God, and God delivered up his son for us, including for Abraham. Because he did, how shall he not, through Jesus Christ, freely give us all things, just as he now is going to give to Abraham? Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. At the moment of finality comes the sound of relief in what is almost an ironic twist and try to see if you can see what's going on here. The angel of the Lord, the divine son of God, who is prefigured here in Isaac, is the one who calls out for the sacrifice to be halted. 
The very same Lord, though, would receive in full what Isaac is spared from. The great mediator between God and man now steps in to fulfill the task of mediation for his beloved servant Abraham. And when he does so, it is in a display of emotion that is found throughout the entire Bible. He calls his name twice. Abraham, Abraham. This is the very first time it's done in the Bible, though, out of hundreds of times. And this is a method of emphasis similar to our exclamation point on the end of a sentence or maybe putting italics inside the sentence. An amazing twist of what God is doing. Jesus, the angel of the Lord, calls out to Abraham, 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 to save the son of promise who is going to lead to him. And yet, from this son of promise will also come the nation of Israel, who will call out exactly the opposite in the same spot 1,800 years later. Luke 23 records their emphatic statement, crucify, crucify. And as he hung alone on the cross, bearing the weight of the sins of the world, he called out to his own father in fulfillment of the 22nd Psalm. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible is so filled with the amazing love of God and what he has done, even for those who would raise their own hands against his son. How can we not stand amazed and in awe of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ? Verse 12, and he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Ki ata adati, now I know. Ki yire Elohim, you fear God. God already knew as he knows everything. But in an act of judicial necessity, because God governs the world, and for the sake of man's conscience, which needs to be instructed by both practice as well as principle, God tested Abraham. What God knew, Abraham now knows by principle as well as practice. His faith has been tested and his faith has been found true. And therefore, God tells him not to lay a hand on Isaac or do anything to him. There will be no sacrifice. There'll be no lighting of the wood, no prayers over the offering. Abraham is told to cease everything associated with this deed. The fear of God, a fear that can only come through faith, is explained, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What has happened here, as I already alluded to, is that Isaac is prefiguring Jesus' real sacrifice. Abraham yielded to God by yielding his son. Isaac yielded to God by yielding himself. And the picture of what God did in Jesus and what Jesus did for his father is complete. This act by the man of faith and by the son of promise is one of the Old Testament's most important accounts in understanding what God has done through Jesus Christ. In the future, when you read this passage, I hope that you will reflect not only on what Abraham did, but what God did in fulfillment of this picture. And before we go on, I want you to again note the concept of obedience versus faith. For Abraham, this has not been a test of obedience, but a test of faith which necessitated obedience. In the case of Isaac, it is a test of obedience, which necessitated faith. And that leads us to our second thought, which is the Lord will provide. Verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. 
And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. In an amazingly beautiful picture of what the Bible would call substitution, God provides a ram in the place of Isaac. To understand this picture, you need to look in the mirror. You see, it is you who deserves both the death and the burning that Isaac was facing. It is you who have sinned through thought, through word, through deed before your creator. And in fact, you have done it with laughing and without care. And as Isaac's name means laughter, this is a picture of you lying on the altar ready to receive your just fate from the God who is as angry at your sin as he is in love with who you could be. And so in place of you, the one deserving death, God sent a substitute to take your place. Again, this picture only comes into focus when we understand other symbolism which is given in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 16, it details the rite of the Day of Atonement, where God covered the sins of the people. And in that covering, he used a ram as a sacrifice and a burnt offering. This ram, along with other animals, were used as a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. The lamb, or the ram, was completely burned up, just as Isaac was supposed to be. This pictures the complete destruction of the one tainted with sin. In Isaac's case, a ram is given as a substitute as well. This becomes even more beautiful to picture when we note that the very spot where Abraham is to offer up his son is the same spot where the temple would be built, where Solomon put that temple a thousand years later, as we talked about last week. And these sacrifices were demanded by the law, but the sacrifices of the law could not save anything, according to the book of Hebrews. And so in order to fulfill God's plans and to complete the picture they make, God sent his son, who did die, probably in the exact same spot where the ram is that's caught in the thicket that Abraham turned around and saw. And guess what? He was caught in a thicket by his horns. The picture here is complete when we remember that Jesus is the ram and that he wore a crown of thorns, probably made from a bush from the same spot. It is probable that this bush is the Zizifus spina Christi, or the Christ's thorn. We also call it the jujube tree. It's about 20 feet high. It grows all over the waysides of Jerusalem. Hang on, I'm losing my... The wind's picking up here. It grows all around the waysides of Jerusalem, and it has thorns on it. One is straight and one is curved, and they occur together at a single point. This ram that is caught in the Christ's thorn became Isaac's substitute, and the true lamb caught in the same thorns, was, which were woven as a crown on his head, came 1,800 years later in the same spot, and he was a whole burnt offering to God, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The term sweet-smelling aroma there is actually a picture of the whole burnt offering. And before we go on, we want to note how the author of Hebrews explains the sacrifice of Christ. Here's what he says. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sacrifices, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come 
in the volume of the book, meaning the whole Old Testament, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifices and offering, burn offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them. But he goes on to say, which are offered according to the law. God mandated that these sacrifices be made and yet they don't please God. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the old covenant, that he may establish the second, meaning the new covenant. By that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What Isaac could never have done, what all of those temple sacrifices could never have done was to take away the sins of the world, which came through the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. After I met the Lord, I made a cross, a big cross, and I uh, made signs for it. And I put a different sign on it each day leading up to Easter. I put it out in front of my house every single day of the Passion Week. And I have done this every single year since then. And the first sign on that cross that you'll see every single year has this verse on it. It says, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I chose this verse because even from the first times that I'd read Genesis, I understood what this was saying, and Abraham did too. He looked behind him and he saw a ram caught in a thicket. But what he saw with his physical eyes was far less wonderful than what he saw with his spiritual eyes. Abraham looked into the future and he saw the mystery that he had wondered about from his first call into the promised land and through every promise of God since then. He saw Christ, our substitute, and he noted where Christ's work would be accomplished. He saw the cross and he saw the resurrection. The mystery revealed before his eyes was far more wonderful than the thought of not losing his son Isaac. Having Isaac for a couple more years of his life would be inconsequential to having Isaac for all of eternity. And that could only happen one way. Abraham saw the Lord on his cross and he called the place Jehovah Yireh, the Lord sees. And because of this, from that time on, the saying became known, on the mountain of the Lord, he will appear. Now, the New King James Version translates this, on the mountain of the Lord, he will provide. Because of the type of the verb though, in Hebrew, known as a nifal, it does not mean provide, but rather appear. This is specifically speaking about the manifestation of Jehovah in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul speaks of in his first letter to Timothy. He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And that leads us to our third thought today, which is only after the substitute. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. Now, I was thinking about this verse, and as I do each verse as I'm preparing these and praying and thinking, why after the ram was offered did God call the second time? And I didn't find any commentary that gave any thought on this at all. But it seems rather obvious it is a picture of our salvation. God calls all men to himself through Jesus Christ. It is his way of speaking to us by the offering of his son. The ram is there, but we have to accept his work as our substitute. God only calls the second time after we accept him as Lord and Savior. 
Only after receiving this substitute can we expect what comes after the substitute. God doesn't demand any of us to make a human sacrifice, but rather to accept the offering that he has given. It is a spiritual sacrifice which really occurred physically in his own son. This equates to an unconditional denial of us to save ourselves, which is something that all people seem to want to do. We must die to sin through Jesus Christ, the substitute that God offers. We are saved and then we receive the promised blessings. And I can tell you how many people that I know on Facebook that aren't Christians that are calling out for the blessings of God continuously. And it goes back to what I was saying about America. God bless America. We're asking for something without receiving what God has offered first. And we need to first receive what God has offered before we ask for the blessings. We can't get our categories in the wrong order. The substitute is satisfactory, and thus I will bless you, is the concept we should get from this verse of God calling to Abraham. Verse 16, and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Earlier I said that it was Jehovah that called out to Abraham. It said the angel of the Lord, but I said it's Jehovah. This verse confirms that. The angel of the Lord is the Lord, and he is sworn by himself. His oath is explained in detail in Hebrews chapter 10, and it cannot be passed over. Here's what it says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's the verse we just read. And then he goes on and says, uh, saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. That'll be our next verse. And so after he had patiently endured, meaning all the years of Abraham, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation for them is the end of all dispute. When we get in an argument with somebody, we will swear by something greater to end the dispute. I swear by my mother's grave. And people say, oh, good. Okay, well, I accept your word now. Or I swear by Alpha Centauri. And you say, oh, good. I No, we are not to swear by anything except by the name of the Lord because he is the creator. And anything less that we swear on is idolatry. And it goes on to say here, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that means anybody who's called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior throughout all of the ages, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. We already know that it's impossible for God to lie. So what he says is, it cannot change and it cannot be altered. It is. But when he swears by himself, it's showing the immutability of the previous promise. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. In other words, if you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has already said this is the case, and then he has sworn by himself that the seed, which is Jesus Christ, will come to fruition every promise that he has given. We have every single guarantee that when we have a hope in Jesus Christ that it is immutable. And I hope you'll remember that when you're having tough times like one of my friends over here has been having lately great difficult times in her life and yet she's got this hope in her heart and it is an immutable hope it cannot diminish or be changed verse 17 blessing i will bless you and multiplying i will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore the lord in swearing this oath upon himself uses a repetition in a way which shows us that the nations of the earth are willingly 
going to come to the blessings of Abraham. He says it twice, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you, uh, multiply your descendants. It is as if they are going to rush forward en masse to join the blessings he's promised. Blessings which come through his seed, the Messiah. And the number of them will be astonishing. So much so that the Lord uses two terms to describe it, as of the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is at the lip of the sea where the waves rush in, bringing even more sand continuously. This is a combination of the two previous promises that God gave to Abraham about this same thing. In Genesis 13, 16, he says they will be of the dust of the earth. And then in Genesis 15, 5, he says they will be as the stars of the heaven. And now he combines them because of the immutability of the promise he's made. Verse 17 continues, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. The gate of the enemies includes all of their strength. You've got a city and the gates are here. It includes the troop, the advisors, the weapons, the fortifications, everything within that city. This is ultimately fulfilled, not just in the conquest of Canaan, but spiritually by Christ in his church. He states it in Matthew 16. He says, and I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he goes on to say, and I will give you the keys of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Gates are defensive. They're not offensive. What the Lord promises to Abraham and what he promises to us through Jesus is complete victory over the enemies of God and of God's people. Verse 18, in your seed all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In a previous sermon, we saw that the seed here is referring to Jesus himself, his incarnation, all right? Paul explains it in Galatians chapter three in relation to the law of Moses. And if there's nothing else that you remember during this entire sermon, I hope that you'll grasp this. I'm gonna read you what it says there. Now to Abraham and his seed, the promises are made. This is Abraham over here in time, all right? Um, and to seeds as of, uh, he does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed. Well, Jesus comes here, who is Christ. And I say this, that the law, which comes in the middle, which was 430 years later, after the time of Abraham, cannot annul the covenant, which was confirmed before in God in Christ, that it should make the promise of the seed of no effect. For the, if the inheritance is of the law, this thing in the middle, it is no longer of a promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. And therefore, we are not bound by the law because Jesus fulfilled it on our behalf. The promise came before the law. God promised through the seed to bless all the nations of the earth apart from the law. The only way that this is possible is for the law to be fulfilled on our behalf. And thus it requires a man who is born free from sin, but also fulfilled the law without sinning. And only one person has ever done this or ever could do it, and that is Jesus Christ. That is one of the most important tenets that I want you to understand for the rest of your life, that the promise comes through Christ and we are not under the law. If somebody tells you, you have to not eat pork in order to be saved, they're adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they say that you have to spend all Saturday in a uh, church on a Sabbath day, that is, I'm sorry, that is adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no thing of the law which can save you. It is the fulfillment of the law which Jesus did on our behalf. Please remember that, never forget it. 
add nothing to this simple gospel. If you call on the Lord, you will be saved. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The greatest test of faith in the entire Old Testament is now over. Abraham has been given the crown of righteousness and he is given the garments of white. He has proven faithful and God has favored him in a way which will not be seen again in the pages of the Bible. From this foundational account of God's plan of redemption continues on and yet the story for him ends very quietly. This is the last time that we see Abraham in any real capacity. We're going to see him again, but this is the last time that he's noted as anything leading directly to Jesus. All right, it's a very quiet ending for what's happened. He returned to his servants at the foot of Mount Moriah, and together they returned to Beersheba. And if you remember the name of Beersheba, it means the well of the seven. So even this pictures the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus also prevailed over his own trial on Mount Moriah. And after doing so, he also returned to the well of the seven. In his eternal state, as the Lord God Almighty, there are seven aspects of the Lord which are noted, both in Isaiah and in the book of Revelation. Here's what it says from Isaiah. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And then in the book of Revelation, we see this same concept being revealed to us. Grace and peace to you from him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Even in his return to Beersheba, the well of the seven, this man of faith continues to prefigure the Lord of all creation, who also returns to the well of the seven. And that brings us to our fourth and very final thought today, very short thought today. It's called the funnel continues. I've talked about God's funnel in the past. It's the line of God's chosen people as he works through humanity. He started with Adam and then he narrowed it down to Seth and then he narrowed it to Noah and then to Shem and then to Terah and then to Abraham. And now he's narrowed it again down to Isaac. But Isaac will someday need something in order to continue the line. What does Isaac need? Anybody? He needs a wife. Okay? And so at the end of this most important of chapters is postfixed a various, very curious set of verses, which many people wonder, why is this even here? Let me read them to you, all four verses at once. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has born children to your brother, to your brother Nahor. Who is his firstborn? Buz's brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildesh, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, when in fact there's ten names mentioned. One of them is the son of a son, and the other one is Rebekah. So it says there's eight sons, and then it kind of says these other two people. When that happens, and I've said this sermon after sermon going through Genesis, you need to make sure you understand that those names are important, Aram and Rebekah. His concubine, uh, verse 24, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Ma'aka. 
These four verses are given to us for two reasons. The first is to introduce Rebekah, who will become Isaac's wife. The mantle is being passed at this moment from Abraham to Isaac. Abraham has accomplished his work before the Lord, and the main focus of God's funnel will now be directed toward Isaac. As I said, we're going to see Abraham again up until his death at 175 years old, but the mantle is being passed in these verses right here. The second reason is to give the historical names of some of these people who will come into contact later with God's people in the Bible. Not all of them are going to be seen again, but those that will can be traced back to these verses. In essence, it's reminding us that we are all eventually related to each other if we go back far enough. And as I say, every time we come to a set of verses like this, so much for racism. If you're black, if you're white, if you're brown, if you're red, it makes no difference. God is no respecter of persons, and we are all somehow connected to each other through Noah. And from Noah back to Adam. We are all brothers in the Lord. That doesn't mean that God has accepted all of us. We have to come through Jesus Christ. Buddhists are outside of the covenant. Muslims are outside of the covenant. But they are human beings that need a savior. When we read the book of Job, we can come right back to these verses and we can see his family line. When we read about the Chaldeans, that great group of people that are noted in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of Daniel and elsewhere, we can come back to these verses and we can say this is where they started. These and others who later became enemies or allies with the Israelites are all human beings needing the same Savior that Abraham needed. Now I want to take two minutes and I want to tell you about this Savior in case you've never accepted him yourself personally and why he is the substitute that we so desperately need. Here we are, we've all sinned before God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Everybody here is gonna die and we all know that and we're going to die because we've sinned. And we've not only sinned in and of ourselves, such as lying, but we also sinned by being born. The very fact that we came from Adam means we inherited his sinful state. And so Jesus tells us in John 3:18 that if you don't have the son, you're condemned already. So what we need to do is to move away from Adam and there's only one way to do that, and that is to go to the substitute, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the second man, according to Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it says in the Bible, the wages of sin is death, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And so he goes on with these great and glorious words that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. If we simply call on him as Lord and Savior, he becomes our substitute. He died the death that we don't need to die. He suffered the suffering we don't need to suffer. And God promises us eternal life because of him. Why? Because he came out of the grave. Nobody calls on a dead Lord. We call on a risen Christ. And that's all that God asks you to do is to simply, in your heart, ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. And after that, as an act of obedience, God asks us to be baptized. It's a picture of what we just went through. We're buried with God, with Jesus Christ in his death, and we're raised to newness of life by the power of the resurrection. Baptism doesn't signify anything until after you've called on Jesus. In fact, it just gives people a false sense of security. So if you've never been scripturally baptized, I'll do that any day of the week, anytime. And uh, all you have to do is let me know. I always keep a bathing suit in here in case somebody says, I want to get baptized today. But... Uh, that's just something, it's obedience. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It's not going to separate you from God if you don't get baptized. 
but you should because it is obedient and the Lord says to go and make disciples and to baptize in his name, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, that's enough about that. I hope that everybody here has accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you haven't, come to me and I'll, I'll answer any question that you want to know just because it is that important. It is an eternity-deciding decision. All right, I got one more thing before we take communion. This is the weekly poem that I do based on the verses that we just went through. This is Genesis uh, 22, verses 9 through 24, and it's called, The Lord Will Provide. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there where they stood. He placed the wood in order and bound Isaac limb by limb and laid him on the altar there upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and also took the knife to slay his son, his precious son, born of Sarah, his wife. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham, in a resounding voice. Abraham replied, yes, Lord, here I am. Do not lay your hand upon the lad. Instead, you can rejoice. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and maybe he did applaud. There was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, you see. So Abraham went and took the ram and led it by his side and offered it a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. The test of Abraham's faith surely had been won. And as it is said, even to this very day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord a second time out of heaven did say, I have a decree. There is something firmly decided. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, by my word. Blessing I will bless you. Let the nation sing. And multiplying I will multiply your descendants, even as the stars are numbered high in the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore ever so resplendent. The world through you, your seed, I will enliven. And your descendants shall possess their enemy's gate, and throughout all ages, your name, it shall be great. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose, and together to Beersheba they went. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba from then, and this is where for a while his time was spent. Now it came to pass after these things, not before, that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, for this you know they have been praying. Huz, his firstborn, Buz's brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. If girls, they would make a harem. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Ma'aka. What a mother. And so behind us is the story of Abraham and Isaac, given to us to show the marvelous workings of the Lord, all contained in the Holy Bible a beautiful almanac, yes, for us to learn and love his precious word. And what a word it is indeed. May we learn it and give it, to, give it all our heed. For in this book is the story of God's son, who through his blood, the victory is won. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, we have absolute victory. We have the assurance of eternal life in your glorious presence, and we long for that moment to come. And until it comes, help us to just be proper stewards of your word, living properly in your presence and bringing honor and glory to you with our lives. Help us to do this, Lord, because in ourselves we can't. We're just incapable. So fill us with your spirit. 
Give us the ability to just bring you honor and glory all the days of our life. To your honor and praise we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.